The sermon text this morning is John 13, 31 through 14, 31. Because that is so lengthy, I will pick up where Jake left off from the earlier reading. I pick up in uh, verse 15, chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. People sometimes put thought into what they're going to say before they go. Leaving a job, we write up great scripts of what we'll say on our way out the door. Or we read or hear of others' amazing last words, and we imagine ourselves, too, having something profound to say in our dying moments. Before we leave, in the times that matter, we want to offer parting words that will meet the occasion. What I suspect we think about far less is being on the other side of that, What do we want to hear before someone else leaves us? Or perhaps more importantly, what do we need to hear? Those may not be the same thing. For the crowds following Jesus, they most certainly were not. (laughs) Think about his parting words to them. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Oh, how they needed those words, how they needed to hear and heed those words, but they would not. And in unbelief, they could not go where he was going. Now Jesus has focused his attention on the disciples. With Judas' departure, death draws even closer. And in that death, this is verses 31 and 32, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified as his plan of salvation comes to full flower. And now, drawing near to that glory, Jesus is perfectly aware 
of what his disciples needed to hear. Like the unbelieving crowds, these men cannot come where he's going either. He says that in 33. But we will come to learn that this is for a different reason. It's not because they have turned their backs on him and will not follow where he goes. It's because Jesus must go first. He must go ahead of them, before them, to prepare the place where they will go. The unbelieving crowds will die in their sins. These men and all who believe will live where Christ is because he lives. This morning's passage is lengthy, far more than I normally preach, but it's all one event. It's all one conversation. It's very difficult to break up, and I think it's important to understand how it all fits together into one last words event that Jesus offers his disciples. And I bet, as Jake and I read, you heard several themes reoccur throughout, a lot of repetition there. This morning, we'll consider four themes that are not what the disciples wanted to hear, but according to Christ, were certainly what they needed to hear. And perhaps the same will be true for us as well. First, those who abide with Christ practice (laughs) Christ-likeness. That is, there is an ethic in the kingdom of God. There's a particular way of right behavior. There's what Christians are supposed to be and to do within the kingdom of God. And that ethic is rooted in the character of God himself. 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But look also at 14.12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's again and again. There is an ethic in the kingdom of God. And it's rooted in the character of God. Now, one thing we have to ask is why Jesus calls this commandment new. The words of the command aren't anything new. The Old Testament demands God's people love him and love one another as well. So what does Jesus mean that it's new? Another pastor writes, its newness is bound up not only with the new standard, but with the new order. Now think about what he means by that. A new standard. The new standard is Jesus' own love for his disciples. He says, as I loved you. A love that the world had not seen in that way until the incarnation. That way, that kind of love, the the foot-washing love, the walking to the cross love, the self-sacrificial love demonstrated by the Lord Jesus himself. In that way, as he loved them, so they are to love one another. It's a new standard. It's a very specific kind of love to which they're being called. And it's not that it didn't exist before, but the way Jesus demonstrates that love to his disciples is the example. It is the new standard for his people to follow. Jesus demonstrated his love in visible, tangible, undeniable ways. And his people are called to look at the ways he loved And so do likewise. 
but also in Jesus' coming resurrection and exaltation, there's the establishment of a new order. That is, the world, invisible and visible, is not the same after Christ conquers death and sin. It changed something. Yes, we're still waiting on his glorious return. We're still waiting on the end of this present evil age. But everything needed for our victory has already been accomplished in Christ. It is finished. And that's different than it was before. Our future is secured and by faith we abide with Christ forever. And how do people in such condition behave? How do people who don't have to worry about the future behave? How do people whose end is entirely secure behave? They love. They love unreservedly. Because in the new order of things, you can. And in fact, you must. In our sins, we had lived by the rules of the kingdom of this world. We're well familiar with those. But the ethic for the kingdom of God, this new order of things. This is love one another, as I have loved you. Hit me square between the eyes this week when I read one pastor who wrote, this new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and profound enough that even the most mature believers are repeatedly (laughs) embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. What does it look like to love? It's not just paganism, the anti-God crowd that gets this wrong. In the disciples' day, the doctors of the law, the scribes and Pharisees, had turned this command to love into a 380-point checklist of responsibilities. Jesus simplifies. He returns the definition of love to that which is grounded in the character of God. Look at the Father's love for us in Christ. Look at Jesus' love for his people. And seeing Jesus' example, experiencing his love and the love of God for them in Christ, this should give the disciples and all of his followers a newfound zeal for obedience. We should be enthusiastic about this. When we look at Christ, who was fully man, we've been singing it for a month now. He was fully man, human flesh. And he, in the flesh, was able to love God and his fellow man completely. He showed us how, and he showed us that it could be done even by those who wear human flesh. His resurrection and exaltation are the ushering in of a new day for his people. How then will the people of his kingdom live? In love. People were astonished by Christ everywhere he went. You remember that from the gospel text we've been reading? They are astonished, not just by his miraculous power, but by the things that he said. And really, if you look into it, What they're astonished by is the way that he loved. When the world is astonished by Christians, is it because of the way that we love? Christ says, verse 35, that this is how the world will know we are a part of his kingdom. 
The way that we live will be his way, not the world's way. The way that we love his way and not the world's. We will do the works he does, the works that reflect the character of God. And several times he gives us helpful clues as to what it looks like to put that love into practice. The phrase he uses again and again, keep my commandments. The two commandments, love God and love neighbor, summarize the Ten Commandments, which are about that love. This moral law, this is a description of God's own character, and it's the clearest guide we have when wondering how to love. Kids, learn the Ten Commandments if you don't know them already. Embarrass your parents until they know the Ten Commandments. Surveys always reveal a staggeringly low percentage of Christians who know the Ten Commandments. And yet, Christ tells us that for those who abide with him, for those loyal to his kingdom rather than the world's, nothing is more important to know and to do. Nothing. And they're incredibly helpful because they give us clear boundaries for what love does and does not do. Loving is not always easy, nor is it always simple. But you can look at the Ten Commandments and see that it's not possible to love your parents while breaking the Fifth Commandment. It's not possible to love others while we covet what's theirs and gossip and lie about them. And on the other hand, when we want to know how to love a difficult coworker, honoring the commandments is a clear place to start. When we refuse to participate in the world's pornographic obsessions, we love our neighbor by honoring the seventh commandment. We love God by the casting down of idols, by worshiping him in spirit and in truth, honoring his name, his character, and his reputation and by submitting to the way he orders our lives and our weeks. You want to know how to love God? He tells us in black and white. The moral law is a guide. It's a guide for how to love. And yes, it's very different than the world's way. It's God's way. It's God's character. It's what he does and what he is in and of himself. And by this way... People will know that those who do it must belong to Christ. But that brings us to the second theme all throughout this passage. How even the regenerate will struggle to live this way. Because it cannot be done in our own strength. Notice that just before Jesus gives the command, 31 through 33, the focus is not on what his followers can do, but on what they can't. He is the primary actor when the command is given. He's the one who has to act first and does act first, who works first. It's by his glory that this becomes possible. And in the course of this conversation, we get three examples from different disciples, Peter, Thomas, and Philip. And some of what Jesus says to them seems harsh, like when he says to Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my father. But this is what they needed to hear. This is what they needed to know to be ready for his departure. This is what they needed to be able to love. Another writer observes that as highly as they think of Jesus, 
They did not yet grasp that in Jesus, God made himself known. And to the extent that that was still beyond them, they didn't know Jesus very well. It's only in his resurrection and exaltation that even the disciples who spent years at his side will come to know and understand who Jesus is. So we get these three lessons. There's the exchange with Peter, 36 through 38. That's a lesson on the limits of human ability. What Peter thinks he can do, he cannot do. What Peter thinks he will do, he will not do. Peter's fierce independence when it comes to love, plays as haughty self-delusion. No matter how highly he thinks of himself, Peter cannot and will not die for Christ until Christ first dies for him. With Thomas, chapter 14, 5 through 7, we get a lesson in the need for divine intervention. Thomas wants to follow, but he has doubts and fears. He's not sure he knows the way. That's okay, Thomas. None of us did. But in Christ, God showed us the way, not just by example, though he was that, but by incarnation. He is the way because he is the truth and the life. If he were not the truth and not the life, he would not be the way, at least not the way to get where we want to be. In the exchange with Philip, verses 8 through 11 shows just how blind We are toward God in our humanity. Philip has been with Jesus for how long now? And what does he say that he needs in order for his faith to be complete? A vision of the Father. If only Jesus would show him the Father. What has Jesus been doing? He is the perfect revelation of the Father. See him and you see the Father. I and the Father are one, Jesus has said again and again. Now, the cure for unbelief is not for God to show us more than he already has in Christ. The cure for unbelief is for God to give us the eyes to see what he has already perfectly and completely revealed. The good news of this passage is that thankfully he does. That's the third theme of this discourse. God gives his people all they need. All that we need to abide with him is given to us. In fact, while the disciples really do not want Christ to go, what he's explaining to them in this discourse is that it is necessary. It is for their good. For the inauguration of his kingdom, he has to go. He has to conquer sin and death on the cross. He must ascend to glory. He has to go prepare the place for his followers. And he has to send He has to send the paraclete to equip his people to await his return. We're confident in the return of Christ, not just because he said he will come back. That should be enough. (laughs) But we're confident in the return of Christ because he went. We saw him go. He took on the cross. He defeated death and the grave. He ascended to the glory of the Father. Should you have any doubts that he will do everything else that he has promised when you see what he has already done. He's done the work that we could not do to establish the kingdom of glory. He's done the work we could not do to merit ourselves a place in that kingdom. 
And now, even for the kingdom work itself, this life of love that is required for everyone who's a part of his kingdom, he sends us the Spirit, giving us his power to do what we otherwise could not. Holy Spirit may be the most difficult biblical name and concept to translate into modern English. The Greek word is parakletos. The ESV translates it helper here. The NIV goes with counselor. The King James uses comforter. These are all true, but they're individually inadequate and therefore potentially misleading. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God in all ways an equal member of the divine trinity. The the, the presence, the being of God himself for you, alongside you. The Spirit encourages, the Spirit exhorts, the Spirit strengthens and equips the very things that he encourages and exhorts us to do. The Spirit makes possible and makes actual the life of love that we are called to live. But because the Spirit's work is so, well, spiritual, the world cannot see or accept the Spirit, nor what the Spirit does. If the world received the Spirit and lived by the Spirit, they wouldn't be the world. Now, that also means that a citizen of Christ's kingdom who does not live by the Spirit is not really living within the kingdom of Christ. It's clear, such as in verses 21 to 24, that the ability to keep the commandment of love is the manifestation of the presence of God in our lives. It's essential fruit of belonging to the kingdom. And that's not because you have to bring in your love in order to be allowed in the kingdom. It's because having been brought into the kingdom, love is what you will be and do and have. Our love for God and one another is what theologians use the $10 word eschatological fruit to describe. That is, it's the proof of Jesus' resurrection and the power of that resurrection for his people. Our lives of love, the things you do every day to love God and to love your neighbor, those reveal the truth of Christ and the power of God. That's why Jesus says, it sounds insane, in verse 12, Jesus says that these works are even greater than what came before because they're done by the power of an ascended Christ. Our ability to love is a work of God's resurrection power. Does that mean that when we claim to be Christians and we fail to love, in some way we deny the power of the resurrection? It's something to think about. But the fourth theme of this passage should encourage us even when our obedience to love is slow and inconsistent in coming? Because while the visibility of this love in our lives matters, Christ can't make it any more clear, you guys, we have to love. But the hope and security that Jesus offers 
is secured by his work, not our love. Jesus is preparing to return to the glory of the Godhead. This is good for him. It's deserved for him. And it's for our good. He goes to prepare a place as certainly as he is leaving, he is coming back. The disciples grieve. They're not happy about his leaving. But if they were thinking clearly, they would rejoice. Jesus' departure from them is not ultimately the cause of their grief. It's the cure for all grief. He goes to take away grief forever. They will never have to produce sinlessness because he goes in the obedience that they cannot produce. They will never have to pay the cost, their own life, for their sins because he goes and pays it on their behalf. They will never have to wonder, walk around confused and unclear about what God expects of them and what love looks like because he revealed the law of love to them when he goes. And they will never have to manufacture the strength required to obey God because he goes and sends them the helper. Because he lives, they and we will also live. And that's what makes verses like 27 anything but trivial. Because that's why real peace is possible in this life. The circumstances certainly don't suggest peace. Jesus is about to be betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, and put in a tomb. He's about to leave them, his beloved disciples. And their futures are not circumstantially any better either. The kingdom of this world does not treat kindly those who are loyal to the kingdom of God. But despite all of this, Jesus leaves them with his peace. Not the world's peace. That's meaningless words. Those were yard signs that were out this week. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. The world has no logical reason to be at peace, much less any peace to offer others. And so Jesus the prince of peace, gives not theirs, but his peace to his people. His peace is grounded in the reality of the work that he's going to do. Peace with God, the only objective basis for any peace, is what he is going to accomplish for his people. If you think to yourself, I could only be at peace if, however you finish that sentence, you're wrong. There is no peace there. Peace is something that only God can bring, and Christ offers it to all who believe, and that is why he goes. Look even here at this mini lesson. Jesus is headed to the cross. He's understandably deeply troubled. This is not to be counted among Jesus' best weeks of his life. And yet here, among his closest friends, who is comforting who? God comforts his people. He gives them his peace. So as you live in the age of the ruler of this world, are you nonetheless living at peace? You can. 
You should. For all that needs to be done, Christ went to do. And he did it. All that you need to do has been revealed and enabled by Christ. The ruler of this world has no claim on him, and he has no claim on those who follow him. So abide in Christ. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Learn and keep the commandments. And so your life will be to the world an astonishing display of the fruits of the Spirit. Because by the love of God and the finished work of Christ, that is what he is doing in you. 